Hello, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, July 31st. And today, friends, we conclude our look, our journey through the book of Job. We finish today with chapter 42 of Job, this new beginning. You know, we last saw Job, he was flat on his face before God. He had been shown two very unforgettable aspects of God's glory and character. And we remember how God took him on this trip through the world of nature, showed him his creative power and his wisdom, uh, not, not in mysteries that are beyond human existence, but in simple things around him. God asked him questions that, that he could not answer, and neither can we. And by means of this, God showed Job that he was entirely out of his league in trying to question God's ways, God's wisdom. What God did was so far beyond what humanity can even remotely dream. There's, there's just no comparison at all and no possibility of, of challenge. And then God took Job on this tour of sort of the moral problems of the universe and using the symbolism of these two great beasts, the Leviathan and Behemoth. And, and God showed him the depth of evil in humanity, what the New Testament calls the mystery of lawlessness and why it is that every generation has to struggle with the same problems. We make no moral advance from century to century, but wrestle with the same difficulties that people wrestled with thousands of years ago, even to the very beginning, the dawn of of history. There is some deep embodiment of evil in the human heart that that God shows to Job through the symbolism of these two ferocious, unconquerable beasts. And as Job learns that these are the problems in his own heart, problems that God has to deal with, he, he bows before him, before this amazing vision of God's power and might and glory and wisdom. Job repents in dust and in ashes, and he cries out to God. And, and then in chapter 2, beginning with verse 7, we come to this new beginning. Job has learned his lesson. He saw that there were depths and degrees of pride and self-sufficiency in himself that he just wasn't aware of. And, and certainly there's, there must be nothing more difficult for us to learn than the fact that there are things in us that we are not conscious of. We, we think we're doing well. We, our own view of ourselves is superficial, and we think everything's right. And it's a shocking revelation to us to learn that we ought to be, uh, that we thought to be love was really nothing but self-centeredness, playing the game by which we get something back in return. What we thought to be righteous behavior was really nothing but manipulation even of someone else. And this is what Job has learned. He thought he could, he thought he could trust God through any circumstance of his life. He was confident in his own ability to serve God. But, but like Peter saying to Jesus, everyone else will deny you, but I'll never do so. You can count on me. In a sense, Job quite honestly and earnestly from his heart had been saying to God, I'll stay with you no matter what. And for a while he held in there, but now God has shown him that without his own help, God's own help, he's totally weak. He's thoroughly independable. And Job has seen his guilt, and he's admitted it before God, and he's repented. And now now it's the three friends' turn. And in chapter 42, beginning in verse 7, God summons Eliphaz, the leader 
of the three before him. And these close friends dropped out of sight for a while when Elihu came on the scene, but now God calls them before him. And in verse seven, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up to yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That sentence from God must have been a had a stunning effect on Eliphaz and his two friends for the one thing that they had been sure of all through this account was that they were defending the righteousness of God. They were zealous for God's honor and they must have prided themselves on the fact that they were standing for God's righteousness. They were upholding his sovereignty among men. They were, they were scathing in their denunciation of human pride and evil. And now to their amazement, they, they are charged by God himself with defaming him that must have been a pretty hard blow to their pride and this chapter seems to be filled with surprises one of the surprises or surprising things to these men was the discovery that their their concern and zeal for the honor of god was regarded as worthless in his sight they, they're charged with defaming the name of god well what is it that, that they said that that god took offense to and and we recall that they formulated this theory of a suffering uh, of suffering that made God out to be nothing but an arbiter of arbitrator of justice, a great cosmic judge who visited punishment on those who did wrong without exception instantly and rewarded those who did right with prosperity and blessing. And this was the kind of God that they presented to people, a great judge of all men, but not at all concerned with compassion, love, mercy, and patience. So the God that they presented before men was a God far from reality. They did indeed distort the being of God. Now, friends, we, we find a lot of believers like this. The God that they picture before people is one who's wholly concerned with truth as, as though that's all there were, but who is, is deeply offended by sin. And he is, that is true, but who instantly visits it with some kind of condemnation and judgment. They picture God as this very stern and harsh being who's leaning over the walls of heaven, ready to cry, you know, cut that out the minute anybody steps out of line. And that is why the world gets very distorted views of what God is like. And that is what these three friends were doing, though they didn't mean to. They meant to uphold God's righteousness, but they said nothing about his mercy, of his compassion, his patience, his willingness to reach out and to wait for humanity and to give them opportunity upon opportunity upon opportunity to repent. The scriptures say that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. That's Matthew 5, 45. God's blessings are not withheld from those who are wrong and who are rebellious. He gives them family life. He gives them joy, times of pleasure, times of peace. As Roman puts it, it is the goodness of God that is designed to lead to repentance, that men may understand where their blessings are coming from. That's Romans 
It is God who sends rain, who, as Job so beautifully puts it, tilts the wineskins in the heavens and lets the rain drop on us. God allows these things to come in order that we might understand the basis of human blessing and then repent of our wickedness and our rebellion and turn back to him. This is what these friends have failed to see and to set out before humanity. They present a distorted God. And then as we look back through the book, remember, they they charged Job with hypocrisy. And even without right wickedness, without really any basis, in fact, whatsoever, this, this man who morally was perfect and upright in his conduct, even God himself said so. They charged him with being a hypocrite and with hiding some deep and terrible sin in his heart. All of his troubles came from the fact that he was unwilling to admit some awful thing that he had done. They said, and, and, and then they increased the torment of his, this man's suffering by these false accusations. And in doing that, they, they represented themselves as the mouthpiece of God. They were, they were speaking as though God himself was charging Job with this. And now God takes offense at that. They were doing the devil's work. The devil is the accuser of the beloved. That's Revelation 12, 10. He is the, is the accuser in heaven and the destroyer on earth. These men unwittingly find themselves victims of the devil's lives, and they have become his instruments to torment Job. So God calls them to account. He says that his wrath is kindled against them because they have been guilty of these things. Now, perhaps we are also surprised that twice in this account, God says that Job said, God says that Job said was right about him. What what Job said was right about him. We've never seen any recognition up to this time that Job had said things right. In fact, the whole book is aimed at pointing out that Job was wrong in his attitude about God. Although both the friends and Job say some wonderfully true things about God, and and there are great passages of brilliance and glory that depict something of the power and the beauty and the wisdom of God. Nevertheless, Job himself had admitted now that he spoke in ignorance, and, and he repents of this and puts his hand over his mouth. So it is surprising that God twice admits that Job has said that which is right about him. And in what way did he say what was right? Well, first, I think if we look back through this, we will see that when Job could see no sin in himself, he did indeed charge God with unfairness. But the moment God showed him the sin that was deeply embedded in his heart, he immediately repents. There's no hesitation. There's no argument. There's no self-defense. He admits immediately that the problem was him and not in God. And second, remember that Job was always true to the facts as he saw them. Now, he did not see them very clearly. And there are things about himself and about God's rule in the universe that he did not understand. But to the point where he did see things, he was always honest. There was no distorting or twisting of the facts to fit some inadequate theology. He did not try to kid himself. And he did not try to admit to things that could, that could not see, that, that he couldn't see were true. He was always brutally honest. And third, as we remember the account, he took his problem to God, even though God was his problem. That's an an amazing and admirable thing in Job. Remember how all through the account, he is breaking into prayer constantly. Out of the torment and the anguish that he feels, he, he always ends up laying his complaint before God. Now, the friends never pray for Job. 
They never ask God to relieve his suffering. They never ask for help or wisdom or understanding on their part. They simply ignore all contact with the living God themselves. But Job is always crying out before God and bringing his problems, his bewilderment, his bafflement unto Jesus, unto the Lord himself, asking for wisdom and help. Remember how Jesus said to the people in his day, come to me all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And finally, when Job does repent, he declares without restraint and without reservation that God is God, that he is holy and wise and just and good, even when he seems to be different. Ultimately, that is the highest expression of faith, that we do not trust our human observations of what is happening. We understand the limitations to our humanity. We do not assume that we have all the facts by which we can condemn and judge a holy God. That is what Job does. He pronounces God as just and holy in all that he does. We learn through the book of Job that when our situation and when things are going on that we don't understand, we learn to trust God. When, when, our, when friends and when people fail us and we don't understand what's going on, we learn to trust God. And when God seems to be failing us and we don't understand what he's doing, we trust God. Now, however, to the credit of these three friends, they too immediately obey God when he tells them what's wrong. In verse 9, so Eliphaz, the, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now, there's no resistance on their part either, no argument. Even though it means they have to go, you know, hat in hand to Job, ask him to pray for them. Can you imagine how humiliating that must have been? After all the proud things that they had said against him and how they had put him down, now, now they have to come and say, hey, Job, oh, buddy, I, you know, we were sorry for what we said. God has asked us, asked for you to pray for us. But they did it. And they bring the offering of seven bulls and seven rams. Now, seven is the number of perfection in Scripture. And the bull is always the picture of service, perfect service even into death. That's sort of the meaning of the offering of seven bulls. The ram in the Bible is, is sort of a picture of energy. Seven rams offered is the total commitment of their energies given to God, even to death. So in this burnt offering, they are picturing the true basis of their acceptance before God, not their own service for him, but that which is represented by that great and all-sufficient substitute for man's wrongdoing, Jesus himself. It's prophetic and how the book of Job is prophetic often. And all these offerings of the Old Testament picture Jesus. They are, they are the way the Old Testament believers looked to the work of Christ, just as we do looking back to the cross. These offerings were a picture of the cross of Jesus. As these men offered these bulls and rams, it was a way of indicating that they understood that before God, man's honor is, is laid low and even his best efforts are shown to be you know pretty pretty funny, pretty folly. And they turn from all this to that perfect substitute for man, the righteousness of Christ, and accept what God gives in man's place. All of us get angry with God because he has rejected our service, our efforts on our on his behalf. We, we have felt angry and upset with God because he did not apparently recognize all the good things that we had done for him last year. That, that is the way we feel. 
But the thing he works to show us is that none of us can ever stand in his presence. And the New Testament tells us that no flesh shall glory in his presence. We must rest only on that sacrifice made on our behalf, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And now notice also God's insistence on intercessory prayer here. What, what, what an interesting thing. God tells these friends, there will be no pardon for you without Job's petition on your behalf. If you want to be received and forgiven, you must not only bring the sacrifices, but my servant Job must pray for you. Well, what a lesson that is on prayer for, for us, many of us, I think. I, I think grow up with the idea that, that prayer is, is a kind of way that has been given uh, to, to manipulate God to do what we want, a kind of heavenly Aladdin's lamp that we can rub sometimes for half an hour at a time and feel that God is going to suddenly appear as the genie and bow and say, you know, Master, what do you want me to do for you? You know, we think if we pray long enough and hard enough, you know, in, in, in a certain order, in a certain way, that we can manipulate God. But, but prayer is not that. Prayer is not the way we get God to do what we want. Prayer is the way by which God enlists us, enlists us in what he is doing. This, this is what is underscored in this passage, and it's so important that God says that without prayer, he, he will not do it. Remember, it is James in the New Testament who reminds us of Job. James tells us, you have not because you ask not. How, how poor our lives are and the lives of our friends and loved ones simply because we think prayer is unimportant and we do not bother to pray for one another. And God underlines this here. Your friends will not be accepted, Job, unless you pray for them. So when Job prayed, they were forgiven and pardoned. Now, that's a beautiful picture of forgiveness here. I love to kind of picture this with, in my imagination. Here's Job's chance. If he ever wanted it, here it is, to get even with his friends. When God sent them to him with their hat in their hand, asking for pardon, asking for his prayers, how easy it would have been for him to say, okay, okay. I thought, I thought you'd come around, fellas. You, you were the ones who gave me all that trouble. You, you ran me down. You falsely accused me. You said all those evil things about me. So I'm just going to let you sweat a little bit. I'm, I, you know. I mean, that's, that's what many of us would have said. But, but it's obvious that Job does not do that. I, I wish we could have heard his prayer. I'm, I'm sure it would have been something like, you know, Lord, here are these, these three friends of mine's. Maybe they've been stubborn or hard-headed, foolish, just as I was, Lord. But you forgave me, and now I, I just simply ask that you forgive them as well. What, a, what an amazing spirit of forgiveness is exercised here. Job might have, you know, could, could have caused, called them all kinds of things. Um, but but he, he prays for them. And doesn't that remind, uh, remind us of Paul's words in Ephesians 4 when he wrote to the Christians in, in the church there, and he said, be kind and tenderhearted one to another, forgiving one another, even as God, for Jesus' sake, has forgiven you. Perhaps there's nothing more contrary to a Christian spirit than an unforgiving heart, a grudge against someone else, Christians refusing to talk to someone or being cold in their relationships with each other. Nothing is more removed from the spirit of Christian forgiveness than that. And what a beautiful thing to see Job praying for his friends without what seems to be a vestige of resentment or an attempt to get even on his part, but holding them up before God and God honoring that prayer and forgiving these men and restoring them to his grace, withholding his punishment, 
and blessing their lives. Now, in the next section, verses 10 through 13, we get a picture of the restoration that God brought into Job's life. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each of them gave him a piece of of money and a ring of gold and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning and he he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand donkeys and he he also had seven sons and three daughters that's what James calls the end of the Lord or in the revised version the purpose of the Lord revealing him to be compassionate and merciful now God did not suddenly become compassionate and merciful to Job he had been that the entire time God's character unchanging is compassion and mercy he is love and we have to remember that he he puts us through some times of trial and pressure and hardships as he did job it's not because he's angry upset it's because he is compassionate and merciful and if we wait he will bring us to the place where we will see that as, as we will see that as plainly and as clearly as job did so in the end so the end of the lord the purpose of the lord is to reveal his own heart of compassion and mercy to this man there's this passage in Lamentations that I think we, we have to remember when we're going through trials and afflictions. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but through, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men. Isn't that encouraging? He does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men. He will do it because he loves us and we need it, but he does not do it lightly. He feels with, uh, he, he feels with us in it. As a good parent with, with their children, they hurt worse than, than the children do at times. He does not willingly do it. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I think we have to remember that when we are put through times of pressure. And so now God moves Job's, Job's relatives and friends to bring him gifts of silver and gold. Perhaps these gifts of silver and gold so that the friends and relatives brought were God's way of providing a foundation of the wealth that he was going to bring to Job. At, at any rate, as the text tells us, Job ended up with double everything that he had before. He started out with 7,000 sheep. He ends up with 14. 3,000 camels. He now has six. 500 yoke of oxen. Now 1,000. Well, we say God doubled everything but his sons and his daughters. He ended up with seven sons and three daughters, just like he had in the beginning. But we forget that he had has seven sons and three daughters in heaven and seven sons and three daughters more on earth. So God gave Job double everything that he had to start with. It's the mercy of God. He does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men, but longs to give them blessing when they come to the place where they can handle the blessing that he wants to give. Now, there's another surprise here in verse 14. The focus of the chapter now comes to to the daughters of Job. And he called the name of the first uh, Jemima and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. The fascinating thing about this account is that the whole scripture seems to focus now on the daughters of Job. 
instead of the sons. In chapter one, 40 chapters ago, 41 chapters ago, it was the sons who were in the, in the forefront. You know, they had a birthday party every year. They invited their sisters to come and share it with them. But here at the end of the book, it's the daughters of Job. Now, being the father of an amazing, beautiful daughter myself, I know how Job must have felt about them. He was proud of these daughters. In fact, he gave them an inheritance among their brothers, which was absolutely unheard of in the culture of that time. And the whole point of the passage is that these daughters were made to share alike in an inheritance that they were given. And that's symbolic because the story of this book is the story of a man who, as far as he knew himself, wanted to serve God, was upright, was morally strong, and did his very best to do what God wanted, but was unconscious of the level of evil that was in his heart and in his, in his life. And on those terms, he was living what we would call the natural life, the life of those around. The, the best of us at times will live moral, clean, upright lives. Job was like that. And I believe he was a true believer. I'm not implying that he was not. But he was living as though he had not yet discovered truth about God that would take him to a deeper level of life called spiritual life. And by the end of the book, he has learned not to trust himself for anything at all. By the end of the book, he has learned that he cannot, in his own strength, do anything that would be acceptable before a holy God. And by the end of the book, he has come to the place where he's cast everything on to the grace of God alone. And it is taking his righteous standing before God totally from God's gift to him. He's taking his stand in the great mediator of whom he himself has spoken throughout the book. And in those terms, as the New Testament tells us, if anyone be in Christ, there is neither male nor female, but all share alike in the glory of God and in the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord, Galatians 3.28. Spiritually, there are no distinctions. And that is what is brought out so beautifully at the end of this book. Now, the names are significant. And here are the meanings of them. Jemima means dove. And throughout Scripture, And even in our culture today, the dove is that symbol of peace. Keziah is another spelling for the word cassia. And when the wise men brought their gifts to Jesus, they brought gifts of cassia, aloes, and myrrh, all of which were fragrances, incenses, expensive, rare, beautiful. Cassia is an incense or a fragrance, and that is the symbolism of it. Now, Karen Hapuk literally means the horn of adornment and is a reference then to the outward beauty that comes from inward character. So what we have here then is peace and fragrance and beauty as the fruits of Job's trials. And surely, as the text says, there was none so fair in all the land as these. The New Testament in Romans 5 tells us that suffering does this to those who learn to take it as evidence of God's love. Suffering, Paul says, produces patience, and patience produces character, beauty, fragrance, peace. And character produces hope, hope that we were realizing the kind of person we want to be. And hope does not make us ashamed, Paul says. It leaves us confident and sure of our God and the power and the resources of the spiritual life. And that is what we have here at the close of this book. We are focused in on this in order to teach us what came out of Job's trial. 
Now the book ends on a note of contentment and peace. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. He was probably about 70 when the book opens. So he's an oldish man. What, what a picture of peace, a contended man. God has greatly blessed him. Now we too can have a new beginning. The old is past. It's put away forever. God invites us always to forget about all the distrust and all the fears, all the anxieties of the past, all the resentments that we've been holding against others, all the grudges, the criticisms, to put them away and to begin again. And the question that is presented to you and I, to us, as we close this book, and I feel it deeply in in myself, the question is, on what basis am I going to live? Will it be on the old basis of it all depends on me, do-it-yourself, goodness before God, working so hard to, quote-unquote, defend God, trying my best to be pleasing to God and meaning it with all my heart, but never realizing the depths of evil which I have to deal with? Or will it be accepting the gift of God, which is waiting for me every single day? It's fresh, right from his hand. It's a gift of forgiveness, of righteousness that's already mine, of a relationship in which he is my dear father and I am his beloved, his cherished. I'm his child. And that I have, therefore, provided to me everything I need all day long to say no to evil and yes to the truth and right. Will it be on that basis? And if it is, our lives will be characterized by peace and fragrance and beauty. Amen. And God bless.